stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome to this hour of the program. Our telephone number in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Today is National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada, 25 years since we began marking this occasion. And uh, this year comes uh, amid a a really important conversation that we're having as Canadians uh, about our legacy as a country and how we've treated Indigenous Canadians and, and how we move forward. And part of moving forward, I think, is having an understanding and a reckoning with the past and the recent discovery of unmarked burial sites, over 200 at a, a former residential school in, in Kamloops, is a, a reminder of the painful legacy of past decisions. And, and it and illustrates that we really haven't fully had a reckoning with that past. So with, with that as a backdrop, I wanted to uh, bring our next guest into the conversation. And he had a really interesting piece last week framed as a letter to John A. Macdonald. And, and certainly Canada's founding prime minister has found himself at the center of uh, these conversations. Joining us uh, on the line here this afternoon, very pleased to welcome to the program Chris Sankey, who's a prominent uh, Indigenous business leader, a former elected councillor with the BC First Nation, and a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And you can find his piece at MacdonaldLaurier.ca. Chris Sankey, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, I, as I mentioned, I think we're at an important moment uh, in in this country and in. in you know, being able to to address these these matters and and hopefully start to move forward in a meaningful way. And you know, you write in this this piece about just how deeply you yourself have, have been affected by you know some of the uh, the news recently and obviously the, the discovery in Kamloops. Let's start with that. Talk a bit about uh, how how and what this all means to you. Well, um, I, I, before I wrote the piece, I wanted to. Um, I wanted to, I guess, show a little vulnerability. Um, I think uh, many Indigenous people uh, were deeply affected by the finding of the 250 remains of children. Uh, and for myself personally, um, it, was, it was extremely difficult because many of my family went to residential school. Uh, my parents went, my, my step-parent went. I've had siblings go to day school. Uh, grandparents, um, it's just the list goes on. But, you know, I'm not alone in that. So I, I thought, what can I do differently to maybe perhaps have um, Canadians really feel um, what we've been feeling all this time? Yeah. And I've always said that if I was going to try and make that connection to broader Canada, that if I'm going to walk the walk and talk the talk, I need to be able to use myself as an example. So when the recent news came out, obviously it was extremely devastating because I think it is only now that Canadians are starting to realize the significant impacts that these schools have had on us. And to truly understand what intergenerational trauma looks like, and it stems on all levels, it, you know, intergenerational trauma it has no boundaries. It, it doesn't have a limitation uh, just because I'm not homeless or out in the street 
of which I always said I was often a paycheck away from, doesn't mean I'm deeply impacted. And trying to get over those barriers has been a challenge for so many Indigenous people. And people I always want to compare us to other atrocities that have happened around the world in terms of you know, when we think of the Jewish and, and so many others, Black Lives Matter and all these other cultures. For so many years, Indigenous people were not allowed to practice their culture. In fact, we were barred from it. And there were all these restrictions in place where we weren't allowed to speak our language, we weren't allowed to practice our culture, we could not dance, we could not sing, we left the reserve, we paid the price, we, we were stripped of our status. If a uh, First Nation woman married a non-Indigenous man, uh, a white man, they lost their status. And prior to Bill C-34, or Bill C-37, um, if a white woman married a Native man, she... And then they, they abolished that, that rule of all back. And I and, and still, even then, I, I think back to it all, and I still don't think Canadians really understood just how devastating these schools were. Um, so I thought, you know what, I, I'm going to write something as personal as I possibly could get to hopefully get Canadians to understand just how devastating these schools were. And so I thought, well, I'm going to write a letter. You know, what mm-hmm. would I say to John A. McDonald today? That's where it all began. Yeah. Well, in, in terms of understanding the impact of these schools, and I mean, you know, I grew up in, in a school system that ne- never talked about this. I never learned about this, right, in, until I was in adulthood. And I think that's the reality for a lot of Canadians that, you know, here we are, uh, you know, in 2021, and, and many Canadians are just starting to learn about this aspect of our history. In, in order for us to move forward, how important is, a, is it for us to have that, that reckoning with the past? I think it's very important. I, I, you know, Indigenous people are not asking Canadians to save them. We're, we're not asking that. Mm-hmm. It's about supporting and understanding what has happened in the past by acknowledging the truth and when you acknowledge the truth, it is only then I feel as Canadians that we can move forward together in harmony. But Indigenous people are not asking you to come up with a solution. We're not asking you to save us. We're not asking you to give us some sort of guidelines so that we can move forward in this country. It's merely acknowledgement of what has happened. And if we could acknowledge the past by acknowledging the truth, there's so much good that could come out of this. Because I've always said, and everything I've ever done, is that we're stronger together. You and I are stronger together. My neighbors, we're stronger together. And if, if, if we don't start reconciling uh, with each other, we're continue, we will continue to point fingers at one another. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we need to do right now. We need to acknowledge it, deal with it, and then move forward together. It's interesting because I think a lot of the focus on John A. Macdonald and, and the significance that he represents as Canada's first prime minister, I mean, it's it's almost an indictment of Canada itself and the concept of Canada itself. I mean, you know, can we can we be a nation where non-Indigenous, Indigenous uh, Canadians can, can move together, you know, together, right, as, as a people? I mean, do, do you think that that's why, you know, we... we are focused more so on John A. Macdonald than, than, say, other former prime ministers, others who were involved in designing some of, you know, the racist laws of the past? Yeah, look, you know, I've always opted myself until I started doing more research of why are we so fixated on one one man 
why is this movement around tearing down the statue such a big deal to specific groups? Um, I've talked to a lot of Indigenous leaders, and i got to tell you, and I even spoke to a lot of Indigenous people just in general, almost every single one of them, if not all of them, disagreed with the dismantling of these statues. They don't agree with it. I don't believe by, you know, eliminating the past is going to solve our problems. It's just not. Uh, in order to deal with our past, we have to face it head on. And eliminating his statue is not going to do that. It's not going to solve it. All it is doing is, is perpetuating division. Mm-hmm. And that, and what's happening is we're missing an opportunity to inform and educate the general public, broader Canada, what this past really was about. Because so many Canadians were unaware of what had happened. But let's not forget, you know, over that time, Johnny McDonald was long gone before the residential schools were put into motion as a mandatory institution where we had to attend. That didn't happen until 1920, 30 years after John A. McDonald had passed away. And everybody that was involved in this, we have to be able to share that burden. Like, I mean, let's be realistic here. Uh, It takes a lot of people to orchestrate something like this. And if we just start to understand that there were mistakes made in government, there were mistakes made along the way that were extremely devastating, where so many children and generations were deeply affected and loss of life that was uncalled for and it should have never happened. But it took a lot of people to know that. Like every day I wake up and I see the stuff in the paper, you cannot tell me that just one person knew about all of this. It was a completely and carefully orchestrated uh, process, an institution that took the livelihoods of so many people, and that took a lot of people to plan and implement. You write something very interesting, right? You talk about how you know tearing down statues doesn't solve any problems, but... You say, I would like to see more monuments erected of our indigenous champions who fought for us and memorials to the indigenous peoples who proved so resilient. I think the focus on Johnny McDonald and, and you know, if we want to, to correct how we teach history, and that's fine, right? And maybe we don't need to celebrate Johnny McDonald to the extent we once did, but it's not helping us learn the other side of it. It's not helping us learn about, you know, the indigenous champions and prominent indigenous figures that... Maybe what we need is not fewer statues, but more statues, right? Yeah, look, I, I've always said to people, like, my, my kids will never know um, poverty. They'll never know um, what it's like to grow up in, in a reservation where you have limited resources. Um, they just will never know that. But I want them to understand the history. I want them to appreciate the value of life and the ability that we've been able to do is to to try to be better parents. Um, I want them to understand that history of what has happened to us. I don't want it eliminated. I don't want to cancel Johnny McDonald. And it just serves no purpose to my children. What I want to see is more champions in this country that have done significant work in making sure that we're going to be a part of this country and not apart from this country. It's so important to me that history stays 
and there's a reason it's there. It's it, the reason is that so we never do it again. It's to teach us, right or wrong. History is to teach us and how to be better to one another. There was a lot of wrongdoings in the past. Tearing down a statue is not going to solve that. I have many friends of all races. My best friend is white. And prior to me writing this article, he had once said to me, and he's, by the way, a retired RCMP member. He said he was so afraid to talk about Indigenous issues or people of color because he didn't want to be labeled a racist or a bigot or a fascist or a white supremacist. And he's my best friend. He's none of those things. But he has seen so much pain in these in, in these in these communities and the hurt and he didn't even know the history of what it's actually what has what had happened. So I really believe that if we're gonna reconcile our differences, it's really important that we start putting up more statues of indigenous champions that have continued to pave their way. You know, Canada became a confederation. Boarding schools already being implemented by that time. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge that, but also acknowledge that there was a mix of conservative and liberal prime ministers at the time, including MPs, including staff. And then we started to gain traction in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. So there were so many Indigenous leaders that are unfortunately no longer with us today that have championed, they championed that path for us. They, 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 traced, they, 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 they made a trail for us and then hope that someday we're going to overcome so many of the challenges and barriers that they fought so hard to get to. And now's our opportunity to overcome those barriers and work stronger together to better the lives of Indigenous people and enrich the lives of Canadians. Because I really think we have a beautiful culture and it's about time we start coming together. Absolutely. Such important words. Uh, much more McDonaldLaurier.ca. Chris Sankey, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate, appreciate the insight on all of this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All the best to you, sir. Uh, that is uh, Chris Sankey. As mentioned, he's a senior fellow at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, a prominent Indigenous business leader, a former elected uh, counselor with the BC First Nation. So, uh, yeah, some real wise words, I think, for, for you know us as a country and, and how we deal with the past and how we move forward together. McDonald-Laurier.ca. That's where you can find more from, from Chris Sankey. So I think it's important that we get to the bottom of this story. And part of this next conversation is about how the government has been an obstacle to getting to the bottom of this story. Now, this concerns two fired researchers from Canada's highest security laboratory, the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg. And the apparent involvement here uh, of China and Chinese military researchers. So what led to these two researchers being removed from their position? Now, the explanation from government, which has been vague all along, but has certainly shifted. So do we have a, an espionage uh, situation here? What is going on here? So some important developments this week. Now, this stems from a motion adopted by the House of Commons earlier this month, that the government release documents regarding this whole situation. The Liberals this week have been found uh, to be in contempt of Parliament over the refusal 
to adhere to that motion, the refusal to release those documents. So joining us to talk a bit more about what happened this week, what we're trying to find out uh, about this whole situation, what we know so far, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Michael Chong, who is the Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, is the Member of Parliament for Wellington, Halton Hills in Ontario. Michael Chong, thank you so much for being with us here today. Welcome to the program. Great to be here, Rob. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot obviously here to talk about, but some important developments. Uh, Let's talk about what happened this week. Why were the Liberals found to be in contempt of Parliament? Quite simply because they are now defying four orders of the House of Commons to hand over the documents we have requested, documents we need to get to the bottom of what exactly happened at the government's Winnipeg lab. You know, one way to look at this, Rob, is that for the last year, the government has been telling Canadians from coast to coast that they need to follow public health orders. Uh, And yet the government is failing to comply with four orders of the House of Commons to hand over these documents. It's hypocrisy at its highest level. What are these documents, or what do they pertain to specifically? The documents pertain to two things. First, they pertain to exactly why these two government scientists were escorted out of the lab on July 5th of 2019 by the RCMP and subsequently fired in January of this year. And secondly, they pertain to the shipment of materials, including deadly viruses, from the Winnipeg lab to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. And so what do we know about the situation? I mean, in, in terms of why this happened or what was being shipped or what the nature of that, that research partnership was, do, do we have any certainty yet? Uh, well, we know a number of things. First, we know that in uh, March of 2019, uh, Dr. Chu, one of the government scientists at the lab, uh, shipped a number of materials Uh, including these deadly viruses, to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We know that on July 5th of that same year, uh, she and her husband, along with a number of students, were escorted out of the lab by the RCMP. We know that, uh, that these government scientists had closely collaborated with, uh, scientists, including, uh, in China, including scientists, uh, from China's military, from the People's Liberation Army. We know that uh, Dr. Chu, in particular, went to China a number of times in the last number of years. The one time in particular to train scientists and technicians at the Wuhan Institute of Virology up to a level four standard, allowing them to handle the world's most deadly viruses and pathogens. And we know that the government granted one of these Chinese military scientists, a scientist attached to the People's Liberation Army, access to work in the government's top-level secret lab in Winnipeg. And we finally know that CSIS raised alarm bells about all of this. That's what we know. And from what little we do know, there are a lot of unanswered questions as to exactly what happened, exactly why these two scientists were fired, and exactly the totality of the relationship between the government's Winnipeg lab and the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Now, the, the motion was also adopted this week that um, finds the Public Health Agency of Canada in contempt of Parliament as well. So what, what's the agency's connection to this then? Well, the agency runs the Winnipeg Lab, and the agency is set up under law as an arm's-length 
agency, uh, part of the government of Canada. And the agency was mentioned because the minister in her testimony uh, a week ago indicated that it was the agency's decision uh, not to hand over the documents to Parliament. Uh, We've been very patient about this whole matter. Uh, We've been not only patient, we've been very, very responsible. Uh, We've been patient because we first introduced uh, the first order to hand over the documents on March 31st of this year, some two and a half months ago. We followed that up with a second order when the government refused, when the health agency refused on May 10th. We followed it up with a third order, not of the committee, but of the entire House of Commons on June 2nd. And here we are now in mid-June, and the government has yet to comply. We've been responsible because we worded all of the three orders uh, in a way that ensured that we protected national security and the details of any ongoing criminal investigation. What about the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, which is, at least in theory, set up to to address these kinds of matters? The government is trying to argue that perhaps that would be the form for reviewing this situation, reviewing these documents. What what about that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, the government is advancing that argument, saying that, that the documents should be sent to the committee. That's really beside the point. The order of the House, the four orders that we have now issued, require the governments to hand over the documents to the law clerk of the House of Commons, not to this National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. You know, it's like like the speed limit um, is 80 kilometres an hour, and you're arguing with the officer that it should be 120 kilometres an hour. That's beside the point. Mm -hmm. Uh, The limit is 80. And if you don't comply, you will get a ticket. You are in violation of the speed limit. The same thing goes in this situation. It doesn't matter what the government thinks, where the government thinks the documents should be sent to. The orders are clear. It should be sent to the law clerk of the House of Commons, something the government is refusing to do. And it's the same, it's the same analogy to you know, the speed limit. It doesn't matter that you think the speed limit should be 120. It is 80. If it's 80, you've got to obey the speed limit. Um, but setting that aside, setting aside, aside the fact that the order they're defying the orders and not giving it to the law clerk of the House of Commons, to, and setting that all aside and focusing on this committee, this is the wrong committee to send it to, which is why we didn't uh, ask the government to send it to this committee. And the reason why it's the wrong committee is because it's not a committee of parliament. It's a committee of the prime minister's office. It, under uh, the act that governs this committee, it clearly states that this is a committee of of the PMO. It clearly states it's not a committee of parliament. Um, it has eight members on the committee. The eight members, including the chair, are decided upon by the prime minister. The prime minister appoints the members. He can fire them at will, and he appoints the chair of the committee. The government, including the prime minister, can decide not to give the committee information, to block any reviews that it is undertaking, and the prime minister can order the committee to change reports before they are made public if he doesn't like something in the report. So it's clearly not the place to hold the government accountable. It's like, it's like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. It, so, you know, if you set aside the orders, it's not the right committee to send it to. But it's a moot point because at the end of the day, the four orders of the House of Commons require the government to send these documents to the law clerk of the House of Commons and not to this committee. 
So the speaker's ruling, the vote this week, I, I think they are symbolically very significant that the government has been found to be in contempt of parliament. But practically speaking, Michael, does this does this force the government in, in any sense? What happens if they continue to to be intransigent on this point? Where, where do we go from here? Well, we'll see. We're hopeful. I'm I'm hopeful that the government will comply with this fourth order, which requires the Public Health Agency of Canada to deliver the documents at the bar of the house by 3 p.m. on Monday afternoon. And so I'm cautiously hopeful that the government will comply with the order. If they don't, then we're into a much more serious matter where the government now is in defiance of four orders of the House of Commons and its committee. And I think we are dangerously getting close to the threshold where the Trudeau government is undermining the rule of law and our parliamentary democracy. And we cannot allow that to happen. Indeed. Uh, More background on all of this, michaelchong.ca. And uh, like you say, we'll see what happens uh, Monday and beyond. But uh, I think it's important Canadians get some answers on this. We'll see what happens. Michael Chong, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. That is uh, Michael Chong. He is the Conservative Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and uh, has been uh, taking the lead on this issue. So I think he lays it out very well. You know, what the legitimate questions and concerns are here that the government needs to answer. Why aren't they answering these questions? Why aren't they providing these documents? I don't know if they have something to hide, but they're sure acting like they do. And welcome back. Rob Brickenridge with you on this uh, eventful Friday. So big announcement from the premier regarding uh, stage three of the reopening. Uh, that will take effect on Canada Day, July 1st, which is what they had hoped for. And that's when it is indeed going to happen. Obviously, there's still a need uh, for folks to get vaccinated. And uh, let's keep ramping up those numbers, first doses and second doses. And the province is, as you heard, making it easier to get that second dose sooner. If you got a first dose in May, you can book a second dose now. If you got a first dose in June, you need only wait four weeks, 28 days, and you can book uh, dose number two. So that's certainly going to help. So a lot to digest there. We'll talk more about it uh, more time for your phone calls as well. But I think certainly as Alberta pivots out of health restrictions, there's going to be more of a focus on the economic recovery uh, that we're going to see in 2021. And certainly we've seen some forecasts that uh, have high expectations, optimistic expectations for where Alberta is heading. But obviously it's not enough to just get back to pre-pandemic levels. Because even before the pandemic, there was a lot of conversation around what Alberta really needs to do to set itself up for success in the long term, and not just in recovery in, in oil and gas, but diversifying our economy, uh, making uh, our economy an attractive jurisdiction for investment, luring head offices here. Uh, and, and certainly that's an issue in, in both major cities uh, in, in Alberta, Edmonton and Calgary, maybe a little more acute in the latter when it comes to uh, empty downtown office space. Alberta uh, uh, set up the Invest Alberta Corporation as a way of trying to address some of these challenges, promote Alberta, help to uh, diversify our economy, promote the energy sector, as well as tech, agriculture, tourism, and other sectors of the economy. Uh, Someone who played a key role in that and was also a key advisor to the Premier is David Knight-Legg, CEO of Invest Alberta. 
Uh, word this week that David is uh, leaving the post for personal family reasons, and uh, he joins us now to talk about uh, the work he's been doing here, where Alberta goes uh, from here. Very pleased to welcome the program. As mentioned, David Knightleg, outgoing CEO of Invest Alberta Corporation. David, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks a lot for having me. By the way, I'm sure you were like most Albertans listening in uh, to the Premier's big announcement today. So certainly uh, an important day, oh, an important great? moment for Alberta. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, it's been a long time, a long time. So, Absolutely. So this is certainly a period of transition for you. Uh, you came back to Alberta, what was it now? It's been over two years, is that right? Yeah, two and a half years ago. And the idea, what was the idea behind your role and the idea behind the Invest Alberta Corporation? Look, I think when I when I came back, the Premier and I had been friends for almost 30 years, and, and we'd often talked uh, about, you know, different aspects of politics. We don't always see every eye to eye on everything. Um, and, but he had always kind of said, you know, he has this life of public service. He always, always said, you know, if you want to come back and give back, there's, there's an open door. And then we had this very serious conversation because he was running uh, this free enterprise party that he had merged and said, you know, this is a chance to really make a difference in Alberta and you've always wanted to. So it was, it ended up just being an opportunity. I couldn't pass up and came back and worked on a lot of files. Uh, the Indigenous Opportunities Corp was the highlight for us setting up a chance to make sure First Nations had the ability to participate in our, our large uh, infrastructure projects from the inside as investors. And then also this came up after a lot of trips we took and we looked around the world and saw some examples of some places that have done a great job, you know, creating an arm's length agency that focuses on bringing foreign direct investment, uh, helping uh, homegrown companies get better trade access internationally. And so we created legislation on this back in the past, uh, the uh, legislature in July. And, uh, and I left the Premier's office to help set it up and launch it and get the right team together. And we've already seen just a phenomenal response from global capital markets and some major firms that when they get the Alberta story in hand, uh, they choose us over other places. And, uh, and the more you tell that story, the more impressed you get as an Albertan with just how lucky we are to live here. Yeah. Yeah, we've seen some interesting announcements recently. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the uh, big investment in hydrogen uh, near Edmonton, yeah. that, that was a big one. But, you know, we've had some announcements from other companies about moving to Alberta, expanding in Alberta. What, what stands out to you about some of the big wins we've seen recently? Well, look, my favorite thing about these wins, Rob, is that they're, these are some of the smartest companies in the world. You know, Emphasis is one of the fastest growing tech companies. Their share price is up over 120%. They've got one of the strongest, smartest, uh, um, you know, technology leaders, Nitin, Akesh there. We've got one of the world's largest, most sophisticated uh, air services companies, air products. You know, they're like an $80, $90 billion global fund. And, and they can go anywhere in the world and they can invest anywhere in the world. And when, they, when, when we engage them in our, in our process of signing a uh, memorandum of understanding, you know, we, we just tell them we've got the youngest demographics in Canada. We've got the highest workforce education levels. We've got the most engineers. We've got the most startups. We've got the most headquarters per capita. We've got the lowest taxes in the nation. And, and they, so they buy all that, Rob, and then they see these epic, beautiful places like Banff and realize that their employees can come here, take home a lot more take-home pay by being based in Alberta and have a place where they can live an incredible lifestyle that's unmatched just about anywhere in the world. And um, and they're choosing, you know, they're voting with their feet, and they do they do all the math themselves. 
Uh, it's not a marketing story. It's kind of based on a fact base, and they're increasingly choosing Alberta. And I can tell you we've got some huge uh, MOUs we can't announce yet, but that are in the works that are going to be coming out in the next uh, several months. When it comes to oil and gas, is, is it uh, a delicate balance at all? On the one hand, you know, sending the message that Alberta is about more than just oil and gas, but also still, you know, reminding people, highlighting its its important role in Alberta. Look, it's the, the, the key thing is that oil and gas is an incredibly important role to play in the world right now. You know, most of the world is not concerned with emissions. Most of the world's concerned with poverty. And as they emerge from poverty, uh, you know, from grinding poverty, especially true in Asia, um, they, they rely very heavily on oil and gas to, to uh, fuel their economies. And, and the biggest opportunity, I think, for Alberta is that we, we have more oil than the U.S. and Russia and China combined. It's an extraordinary strategic reserve. We've got the most, they've got more than 50% of all the democratic source oil in the world. It's an incredibly important thing for Canada and for our place in the world uh, and for Alberta. But we're also the fourth largest natural gas producer, which has an even lower emission standard per unit of energy and is the basis for what Canada could do to remove more emissions than Canada's entire footprint if we help China replace its reliance on thermal coal, which is very intensive on emissions. With our LNG, we would actually reduce more than Canada's entire global emissions footprint. I mean, that's the biggest mm-hmm. single uh, environmental opportunity in the world right now. It's Canada building the infrastructure to get those lower carbon fuels out to Asia, where they've got a huge demand and growth in, in energy demand and emissions. But then the other great news is that we've got this extraordinary uh, capacity with hydrogen, where we've got the perfect setting here with hydrogen that's right next to major global uh, airports and population centers, which is very rare. And we've got increased development of use cases for hydrogen and transit and trucking and, and uh, heavy lift applications like rail. And so Alberta is, again, you know, only 4.5 million of the luckiest people in the world. We've got this stack of energy that goes all the way down the emissions ladder and produces things that the world is desperately in need of. And I think we've just got to continue to tell that story, but also do the job we need to do federally and provincially of building the capacity to get what we've got out to a world that really desperately needs it. Well, yeah, I agree. I think we've got a great story to tell here, but I mean, it feels like, you know, we're, we're up against uh, some significant forces. And, you know, we've certainly heard the stories about big banks or big investment firms, you know, getting out of oil and gas that, uh, that that's, you know, the, the, the perception is that maybe the world's moving in a different direction. A lot of these big investment funds are moving in a different direction. What, what are you seeing and hearing out there? Well, look, I was at a global bank. I, I, you know, left that job to come and do this for a few years. And, uh, um, the, the world is not moving against energy. In fact, that's simply not factual. I think that's fashionable, but it's not factionable. Sorry, it's not factual. The facts are the demand for oil continues to skyrocket around the world as another billion people move out of poverty and need to move into cities and need to move into houses and need have needs like heating and cooling and, and roads and buildings and other things. And all of that's very carbon intensive. I do think that there's a responsible energy movement that's very important, and that's that's what ESG has been all about. And I think for Alberta, the issue is not that we're not the best at ESG, which we are. It's that we haven't been present in some of the markets where that story needs to be told better. And one of the things early on, there was a little bit of uh, you know news around the fact I'd gone to London on some trips. Those trips were about 
talking with HSBC, which had denied uh, capital access to the oil sands on a jurisdictional basis rather than a factual basis based on emissions. And when we confronted that management team with it, they began to re-gear how they were going to uh, work on ESG. With Barclays Bank, Barclays made those changes in their policy. They have now won two shareholder proxy votes, the last one by 86%, acknowledging that they would not put, and specifically put them by ENGO to include the oil sands, and they killed that resolution with massive support from the shareholders. So when the facts are out there, when it's factual and not just fashionable, Alberta wins. But our responsibility is to tell our story and to tell it better. So obviously, investment, uh, Invest Alberta isn't, isn't done its work, and uh, you're, you're not going to be done with Alberta either. But uh, what's next for the corporation? What's next for you here? Well, look, Invest Alberta, the team is phenomenal. We've got some great new executives. Uh, we got out of the gate faster than we, than we thought. We were launching this without being able to use offices, obviously, because of the, the context of the pandemic. So it's been tough. It's been tough for the team, but they've done a phenomenal job. We've already got over three billion of investment in, but it's growing fast. And uh, we've seen over over two, three thousand jobs uh, announced, and and we're just seeing a pipeline that's extraordinary right now. So that team is going to continue to carry it. We're going to find a great new CEO, and I'm going to continue to work in an advisory role with the board from Asia, and I'm going to continue to focus on some of these things we've talked about: ESG, defending Canadian energy, and um, and looking forward to to being back and seeing how the team grows and takes it to the next level in the growth phase. Well, more at investalberta.ca. David, uh, all the best to you and uh, your, your journey and wherever things uh, take you from here. And uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. All right. Thanks, Laura. Take care. Much appreciated. You as well. There you go. That is uh, David Knightleg, who's uh, been an important voice uh, for the Premier in terms of uh, economic strategy. He's played an important role in shaping that strategy as uh, CEO of Invest Alberta. And leaves that role with some, some definite wins that he can point to. Welcome back. Well, certainly over the last year, there's been a real focus on issues around race and racism and systemic racism, to what extent that problem exists here, what we need to do about it. Uh, In terms of how Canadians feel about all of those questions, there's an important new uh, poll out today from the Angus Reid Institute with some interesting findings. There are some deep divides in this country when it comes to these big questions. You know, is Canada a racist country? Well, it depends who you ask. There were those who believe Canada is, obviously those who, who say Canada isn't. At the same time, this survey even suggests a, a willingness on the part of some to acknowledge their own kind of racist views. But I mean, I think the positive news here is there seems to be real positive feelings amongst Canadians uh, toward the idea of diversity. Joining us to talk a bit more about uh, some of these findings and uh, what this all represents. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, David Korzynski, who is a research director at the Angus Reid Institute, more at angusreid.org. David, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, no problem. Always happy to join. Yeah, well, like I say, these are big and important issues and some, some really interesting findings here in, in terms of what Canadians have to say about all of this. What, what stands out to you, though, is, is kind of the big picture here, the big takeaway? Yeah, there's really, um, there are, are competing perspectives. I think there's a number of, of issues where Canadians agree, and then there's some divergent issues. And, you know, we've tried to uh, do our best to distill some, some mindsets from that. You know, we've got 
based on answers to a, a number of questions, you know, more than a dozen questions. We've kind of distilled people down into these four mindsets where, you know, for a quarter of the country, there's really a hesitation um, to em- embrace the, that kind of concept of diversity and and to um, have a really open mindset when it comes to um you know immigration um the way that they these people feel that uh visible minorities are treated by institutions and uh like the police or uh, the education um institution and you've got people in the middle that are kind of um you know they're they're of, of two minds on this they see value in diversity they um they really are are more inclined to to appreciate the the value of of the immigration, what it brings to society. Um, and then on the other end of it, we've got this group that we've called advocates that are are very concerned about all of these issues and really see Canada as a racist country. Um, you know, when you ask them a, a question like uh, about uh, visible minorities being um, you know, treated with prejudice in various institutions in Canada. This group is, you know, twice as likely as as visible minorities themselves to say that this is a huge issue. Um, so you've got these these this spectrum of views on this, and I think it's really important when we're having these discussions to say that, you know, you might have, as the report says, one in three Canadians saying that they think Canada is a racist country. You got two thirds who disagree with that, and there's all of these different. Um, nuances and, and views towards um, people who are visible minorities, indigenous populations, um, and, and all of these different um, populations that make up Canada. So it is quite a widespread discussion. I think uh, what stood out to me is just the, the competing views um, between these groups and how you've, you've really got, you know, a quarter on one side, a quarter on the other, and then 50% of people who are kind of in the middle and uh, see value in, in different statements. Yeah, and I mean, you know, to, if, I mean, for the the glass half full side of it, the more optimistic side of it is that when it comes to diversity, you got about eighty five percent of Canadians who say that diversity makes the country better, and I mean that's encouraging. On the other hand, I mean, you know, there's there's some troubling findings here. You've got twelve percent who acknowledge and that they're willing to admit that they think some races are superior to others. You've got about a quarter of Canadians admitting that they feel, for example, cold toward Muslims. So. There's some troubling findings in all of this, too. Yeah, you know, I think that was interesting, too, is that, you know, Angus Reid himself has been doing this so long that we've got, you know, previous iterations of of the company where in 1994 we asked that question of, uh, do you think that, you know, the fact that Canada is made up of all these different people from different racial backgrounds, does that make Canada a better country? And the percentage of people who, who uh, say that it does has actually gone up four points from 82% in 1994 to 86% now. And it, we've got a, a graph in the release that compares the percentage of the, the population that is uh, identifies as a visible minority. And it's, you know, tripled since that, that time period. So as Canada becomes more diverse, you still get the same number of people saying that they think that that is um, a strength of the country. I think where you get some of that pushback um, is is when it hits people's own personal lives, and there's a lot of of pushback. I think because um, we're all, as a society, being confronted with some of the history of the country and some of the, the 
you know, terrible things that have happened that you could perceive as racist or that, that many people do make that argument. Um, and, and that's a, a difficult thing for some people to deal with when it gets to their own personal situation. We've got this question in here, which is, you know, if I had my choice, um, I'd like to live in a community where my neighbors basically look like me or my own, my own color or race. And you've got one in five Canadians, and this is, the, this is identical between um, Indigenous population, visible minorities, and Caucasian Canadians. It's about one in five in all three of those groups that agree with that statement. They'd like their community to look mm-hmm. like them. So it's, do, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a perspective thing. Do you see that as problematic, or is that just kind of a reality that, that we live with? Um, so it, they're difficult discussions, but I think there is there's certainly value in, in having them. And I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of really interesting data in here, as you've pointed out. There is. And, and it's also worth noting, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, generational differences here. There's regional differences here. There's even gender differences here. I mean, how, how significant, saw, significant are those differences? Yeah, I think the biggest one is is uh, between men and women. And particularly, you know, if you look at men who are, say over the age of 55 and young women um it's it's they almost don't even live in the in the same realm when it comes to this issue um if you ask a question like you know is canada a racist country and you've got you know 85 percent of of older men saying no they don't think that that's the case and then young women almost unanimous that they feel that that is the case so there are really perspectives that are competing here um and, and those are the two groups that are really at odds. You, you see it, um, again, with the, the question of, you mentioned uh, previously, we've got about a, about a quarter of Canadians who say, you know, are, are open enough to say that they feel coldly um, towards the Muslim community. Um, that's about double the number that say that about um, other groups that we asked about, South Asians, uh, Black Canadians, Chinese or East Asians. The Muslim community really stands out there as, as being kind of the, I don't want to say the, the, the target, but the, mm-hmm. they're just, they, they receive colder feelings from, from Canadians. And that is largely, when you look at it, men are, you know, twice as likely to hold that view as women. Um, and older men really have that, you know, they're about 50-50 on that. Half, half of men over 55 say, yeah, they do feel coldly toward that community. Whereas women, um, really lean the other way and they say no that's not the case i feel warmly toward that community they might not have a lot of exposure to muslim canadians but i still view them positively and are open to um you know the contributions that they make to canadian society whereas for men it's it's not the case so that's um you know this data was fielded before the the events in london um so we had to have you know some discussions about how we how we portray this um because it is a it's a, a reality in canada and it's a problem that we saw manifested there obviously in the most extreme way but in much um more nuanced ways i think that kind of draw, draws a, a bit of a correlation there you see that for a quarter there is some hesitation some skepticism about uh, muslim canadians in society well much more is mentioned angusreed.org a very revealing uh, an important snapshot of how canadians are feeling about these big questions david thanks so much for joining us here today really appreciate this no problem thank you all the best. Uh, that's David Gorzinski, Research Director of the Angus Reid Institute, angusreid.org. And uh, some more on this uh, diversity and racism in Canada report. And you know, some of it's surprising. I mean, you know, 
maybe in some circumstances, people are comfortable being candid with uh, pollsters or those doing surveys about some some big questions. Here's where some of this almost seems contradictory. Let's take Saskatchewan, for example. Uh, On the question of is exaggerating racism a bigger problem in Canada than actual racism, people in Saskatchewan, 57% were most likely to say yes. Yet at the same time, on the question, is Canada a racist country, residents of Saskatchewan were actually the most likely to agree with that. 44% of Saskatchewan residents agreed that Canada is a racist country. Quebec actually was the lowest, 24%. The other revealing figure that David uh, hinted at here, where you've got this, this group of about one quarter of Canadians they refer to in the survey as the advocates, very concerned about racism. Uh, For example, though, they are twice as likely as visible minorities themselves to say that police are prejudiced or racist toward the latter demographic, 83% versus 42%. So that's an interesting finding as well. Like David said, you've got some regional differences, generational differences, even gender differences here. And welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Uh, a troubling new report out today that I think Canadians need to pay attention to. It's not something we think much about, and I think maybe it's something we assume is being taken care of. The idea that uh, anything we might be purchasing in Canada uh, might be made from slave labor or forced labor. That, that surely we must have policies in place that, that protect against this sort of thing. Unfortunately, that appears not to be the case, according to a new report uh, from the group Above Grounds. Canada's enforcement of a ban on importing goods produced by forced workers will fall short of standards set by the U.S. unless Ottawa strengthens its policies, this report finds. The report finds that companies are importing into Canada large quantities of goods from industries in which forced labor is known to be rife. So why is this still happening? What more can Canada do about all of this? Uh, you can read more uh, on this at uh, the website for uh, Above Ground, which is aboveground.ngo. So joining us to talk a bit more about what Canada needs to do, why the Americans seem to be a little bit further ahead of us on this matter. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, Lori Waller, who is a communications officer with the group Above Ground. Lori, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, when it comes to uh, Canada's laws regarding forced labor, slave labor, I mean, we, we do have laws that are intended to, to address this, don't we? Um, yes, we have. Um, we have, um, I believe there are some laws uh, addressing slave labor in Canada, which is a concern. Um, but our report looks at uh, we were just looking at, at slave labor overseas that's tied to Canadian businesses, either because they're importing um, importing products or possibly using forced workers themselves in operations overseas. Um, so the only law that applies to this problem of, of imports coming from abroad that are made by slaves um, is an import ban that was adopted about a year ago following on a model that was created by the U.S., and it basically says that it's illegal to import goods into Canada that are produced by forced labor. Um, the problem is it hasn't um, started to enforce the law just yet. 
and that would mean um, sort of designating which are the companies or countries in which the goods are so likely to be be produced by um, forced workers that border authorities are going to block them from coming into Canada. Right. And this report suggests that that Canada is only identifying a small fraction of what's arriving here. But, I mean, how do we know? How do we go about quantifying the extent of the problem abroad and and to what extent we might be importing these goods to Canada? Well, essentially, um, nobody's really done that so far um, because it's quite quite difficult to track. Uh, There's so many different um, steps in a chain of, say, an electronic uh, smartphone being produced. Um, Under this law, even if the phone itself wasn't made in a factory uh, by forced workers, if components in the phone were mined by forced workers, that would technically be illegal. Um, So the U.S. has made some progress in, in sort of documenting where the biggest risks are. It has a list of companies that it won't allow to um, export its products it, to the U.S. Um, and now it's Canada sort of needs to catch up on doing that. So in our report, we looked at some shipment records but, uh, that show that there are, um, company, there are goods coming in from specific companies that are accused of using forced workers. Um, but what we see is really just the tip of the iceberg because the public doesn't have access to all of the uh, shipment records that are coming straight to Canada. Where is this largely happening around the world? I know China is a big uh, source of the problem, um, but but um, where, where are we still seeing these practices? It's it's a little bit of everywhere, um, yeah. and you know it's not so much practices. In some cases, it's it's long entrenched practices, but in other cases, it's very much a feature of the modern global economy with lots of um, uh, mobility. So we see migrant workers are being recruited in very poor countries uh, to go work in in slightly more wealthy countries, where they're told that they're gonna they're gonna earn you know an incredible amount of money for what you know, on the base <laughs> compared to what's, what's normal in, in their country. And so they'll go into significant debt. And then once they get to the host country, often they realize they're going to have to work for five, six, seven years before they'll be able to pay off this debt. Um, and then because they're tied to a single employer, if they start being abused, threats of violence, uh, it's very hard to escape that, that position because of the debt bondage. Um, and also because their their legal status in the country is tied to that one employer. Now, certainly, I think, I mean, there's there's a moral imperative here that, that certainly we should not be willing participants in this and rewarding those who would engage in this practice. Is, is there a link, though? I mean, should we be optimistic that if countries are willing to, to take firm action, uh, that, that this can make a difference globally in reducing the practice? It's It's going to take a lot of, a lot of measures. Um, you know, even if this if this import ban was enforced very rigorously, um, there's always going to be cases that you know the Canadian authorities wouldn't have the relevant information that tells them <laughs> that slave labor slave labor is happening in this supply chain. So another approach that's been taking increasingly in Europe is to pass human rights due diligence legislation, and this would come at it from a bit of another angle. Um, a worker who was enslaved making sh- 
choose for a, a company in Canada, for example, somewhere abroad, um, under this sort of law, they could come to Canada and they could sue the company for not um, doing that careful analysis of its supply chain to make sure that it wasn't supporting forced workers. So as you say, I mean, Canada is sort of talking the talk on this. I mean, we, we did bring in a ban last year, but as you say, we, we seem to be falling behind other jurisdictions. So you know to what Europe's doing. In, in what sense is the U.S. further ahead on this than we are? Well, they're definitely further ahead in terms of uh, analyzing these supply chains and blocking imports. So it has taken action against uh, dozens of companies and said you can't, these goods can't come into the into the states anymore. It also has regional-based bans. So, for example, it, it's declared that any cotton products or tomato uh, products that are made in Xinjiang are so likely to be produced by forced workers that they're not allowed in. And the Canadian model, we don't really know how much it's going to follow the U.S. model, but it seems like uh, it appears that the Canada Border Service Agency is saying that it won't do these these regional types of bans. So what do you think that is? I mean, if obviously we, we recognize there's a problem, that hence, you know, the, the ban we brought in last year, that what would explain then the lack of willingness to be serious about this? Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, one of the... Um, for that particular example of, of not, um, not considering doing regional-based bans, apparently the Canada Border services agency says that it doesn't have the legal authority to do so um and that's actually being challenged right now in federal court by a lawsuit that was brought by a refugee rights organization so it remains to be seen these things are going to be worked out um but we would really like to see to see the see ottawa prioritizing this Absolutely. Much more is mentioned at aboveground.ngo. Lori, thanks so much for joining us here today. really appreciate this. Thank you. All right, that's uh, Lori Waller uh, with the group Above Ground, aboveground.ngo. So they've got a new report out uh, saying that, look, I mean, we've still got a problem here. And Europe, the United States are, are doing more about it than we are. I think, unfortunately, we tend to fall back in this country on symbolism that as long as it appears as though we care, maybe that's just good enough. Uh, but Above Ground says we're calling on the Canadian government to at least meet the level of ambition shown by U.S. authorities in enforcing the ban. This would mean detaining goods at the border when credible information indicates they were most likely produced by forced labor and releasing them only if importers can prove otherwise. I mean, this this should be a no-brainer, obviously, right? I mean, there's, there's really no, no compelling argument for why we should not care about this or turn a blind eye to this. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, obviously, I think we recognize that we got certain situations in certain countries where, you know, workers are not uh, taken care of as, as well as they should be, right? And I think that's something we need to confront. But I mean, th this is is pretty clear. Forced labor, slave labor should just be a complete non-starter. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.